Welcome back to The Casual Academic, where you'll find in-depth literary discussion without the pretense. Just good books. And where do you go with the word? O oh, mystery, O oh, deception, O oh, nostalgia. You think that the word will carry you back to your beginning. But to what beginning? Not yours. No one wants to return to the lie of a golden age to illegitimacy, the animal moan, the struggle for bone in the cave and flintstone, the sacrifice and the madness, the nameless terror of that beginning, to the consecrated fetish, to fear of sun, storm, eclipse, fire, to fear of masks and idols, fear of puberty, of water, hunger, helplessness, cosmic terror, the word, the pyramid of your negations, the bloody altar of your fright. O oh, mystery, O oh, deception, O oh, mirror facing a mirror, do you believe that you can go forward with the word? That you will affirm yourself? Forward to what future? Not to yours. No one wants to go on to damnation, suspicion, frustration, resentment, hate, envy, rancor, despite, insecurity, misery, abuse, insult, intimidation, false pride, bravado, with the fucking corruption of your fucking word. Leave the word behind you, Kill it with borrowed arms. Destroy it. Murder the word that stands between us, makes stone of us, rots us with its poison mixed of idolatry and the cross, so that it cannot be either our reply or our destiny. You tire. You never beat it. You hear the murmur of other prayers that do not listen to your prayer, that the word be neither our answer nor our destiny. Cleanse yourself of the word. You tire. You never beat it. You made it your life road. You too are the son of the word, of betrayal absolved by your betrayal of others, of the oblivion you have needed in order to remember, of the endless chain of our injustice. You tire. Welcome back to The Casual Academic. My name is Jacob. I'm here on a sunny Sunday in Madrid, Spain. At the other end of the line, I've got Alex. He's over there in Zaragoza. How you doing, man? I'm good, dude. It's also a sunny Sunday here in the Big Z, a.k.a. Zaragoza. And <laughs> and it's Mother's Day here in Spain. Um, so it's time to, or it's the day to celebrate all the mothers of the Spanish-speaking world. I don't know when the U.S. Mother's Day is. But um, today I have plans with my mother-in-law, as I'm sure you do too. Uh, but I'm excited to record this episode first. Yeah. Um, word to your mother. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but anyway, man, I'm here to... Uh, uh, happy to be here. Uh, I'm getting through my second cup of coffee, so that should be kicking in at any moment. And um, I'm excited to talk about uh, the death of Artemio Cruz here today. Yeah, we are. It's um, actually the start of a new episode series uh, that is actually, we're kind of going to be doing it, as I say in Spanish, a medias, right? We'll be doing um, two episodes before the summer starts. You guys know that our summer schedules are usually quite crazy. And then we'll do a continuation of it probably in the fall. But yeah, so Carlos Fuentes and his really famous novel, The Death of Artemio Cruz, will start this series. And then uh, we're actually going to be moving on to a new voice of Mexican literature from... Valeria Luisegui, if I'm saying that right, and her book, Faces in the Crowd. Um, we've been reading it and we're loving it. So we're excited to talk about that. But today we're going to focus on Carlos Fuentes, 
and um, his 1962 novel. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering too, Alex, when did you start, when was Carlos Fuentes on your radar? Had you heard about him in history as a guy who studied Latin American history? Was it in your master's degree? When did you come across Fuentes for the first time? Well, actually both. Um, if you study Latin American history and culture, you, you know, his name is going to invariably appear. Um, he's one of the, I guess, names that's always dropped when people talk about Latin American literature and the, in the boom writers, right? Uh, and he's usually conflated with the likes of Marquez, uh, Cortázar, um, maybe even Alejo Carpentier, um, and other guys like that. But with Fuentes, I guess my first real exposure to him was in my master's, uh, when I did my focus more on literature itself. And this book just kept popping up as well as his quote unquote masterpiece, Terra Nostra, which I think was might be his last book before he died or maybe not. I'm not really too sure, but, uh, those two works kind of floated around my entire year at uh, university of Chicago. So uh, this is a book I've been meaning to read for a long time. How about you? Yeah, you know, I hadn't really heard of him that much. It was a name that I think I heard once or twice, but kind of in the section of college classes where it's recommended reading, but not something you have to. And it was something that was just kind of on the periphery. And then when you brought up the death of Artemio Cruz and I found a copy of it and I was like, OK, let's go ahead. Let's read it. It's also like you said, mentioned his name was mentioned in the boom, but there's a lot of names mentioned in the boom as well. So. He kind of got lost in there amongst other writers, especially the Argentines that uh, are near and dear to my heart and that we've gone over on the on the program. So but it's something that I've been wanting to read. And it kind of just like a lot of our episodes fell into our lap. We each had a copy of the book and we got started on it. Um, there was one thing I wanted to talk to you about just real quick, but we talked about this last night. We had our pre taping conversation, but I was asking you about how what makes Fuentes typical of the boom? Is it just the time period? What kind of about the book makes it boom-esque or of the boom? And just kind of like, could you refresh us on what that means in the most broad terms? I, I'm in no, no means an expert on this. And, you know, as a white dude from L.A., I don't know if I'm the voice to be listening to, but from, from what I've studied uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, the names I dropped, and I actually forgot to mention uh, Mario Vargas Llosa from Peru, that... When you think of those writers in isolation, they're they're very different, right? Their style and their approach to fiction and that. But I think what loosely unites all these writers under that sort of, you know, that name of boom is I think their relationship to time, history, and sort of the the telling of their own identities and histories of of their respective countries and of their regions, right? I mean um, if you think about Cortázar, he was he was always playing with time, right? And in fact, his book Hopscotch, you could choose different chapters and choose different paths, kind of in like in a Borgesian way. And Marquez told the history of Colombia, right, via magical realism, sort of obfuscated actual events to get to maybe perhaps um, deeper consequences and deeper meanings of, of what happened um, in Colombia and Latin America. And in the case of Mario Vargas Llosa, he also told historical events, but through a plethora of voices and usually from different perspectives, right? So it was kind of like challenging the dominant narrative that usually came from without, right? That came from perhaps the United States, you know, or, or from dictatorships or authoritarian regimes that sort of created a myth or non-factual histories of nations. So I guess these writers tried to take back the histories of their peoples and present them in a variety of ways, as we've seen. So Carlos Fuentes is no exception, right? Because this book, The Death of Artemio Cruz, does tell the history of Mexico from the revolution onwards uh, through the life of, of the main character, Artemio Cruz, and does it in, a, in an interesting way with various techniques. 
Yeah. And one other thing I just wanted to mention about the boom that I learned through reading a little bit about it um, was that a lot of those books that were disseminated in throughout the world, both in Spanish and in English, um, but specifically in Spain, and that kind of was the gateway into Europe, I guess, was uh, through this printing press in Barcelona, which I hadn't heard of. Have you heard of this? And I was, no. um, I know now that I'm talking about this, of course, I didn't scribble down the name, <laughs> but um, <laughs> apparently it was this, I, um, it's on the tip of my tongue. But anyway, it was this printing press in Barcelona that then printed all these Latin American authors. And then that became popular in Spain. And then by Spain, it got into Europe and people got more famous on a global scale, not just in their respective countries or in Latin America. So I just thought that was interesting in the tie to Spain. And but now, of course, I can't remember the name. So, but anyway. No, yeah, but that is interesting because um, if we were able to find out the year of those publications, because Spain was also living under a dictatorship from 1939 until 1975. So the fact that these authors who were pretty much, you know, I would say writing out against various forms of, of uh, dictatorships and societies, the fact that they were published in Spain is interesting. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Thank God for the internet. It's called Seix Baral. Oh. So, and that's like Barcelona's avant-garde. Yeah. You've heard of that. I've heard of that too. People yeah. have talked about it. Um, and it was founded in 1949. So I think, you know, you'd have to look back and see the, when each thing was published, but I think that's interesting. And also too, I mean, the Catalans were, uh, were not the Madrileños at that point. It wasn't the seat of the government. So I could see how that would be this subversive thing during the dictatorship. Very true. In fact, I'm looking at a book by Manuel Puig, or Puj, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his last name, an Argentine writer, El Beso de la Mujer Araña, The Kiss of the Spider Woman, that was published by Seish Barral. So uh, oh, yeah. there you go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just, wow, serendipitous. Nice. Yeah, it is um, a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, well, that's cool, man. I didn't know that. Should we get started? Talk about Carlos a little bit? Yep. Very quickly, Carlos Fuentes, very prominent uh, Mexican writer, intellectual, poet, playwright, uh, was born in 1928 in Panama City, not in Mexico, and he died in 2012 in Mexico City, and he's known around the world. He was buddies with Octavio Paz, right, the famous poet and essayist. Carlos Fuentes also, uh, Jake, you told me this, and I later read about it, that he spent some of his childhood in Washington, D.C., in the United States, spoke fluent, if not perfect, English, um, traveled around a lot because his parents were diplomats. So he traveled about the Americas and Europe. He also did a lot of tours around American campuses and a lot of speeches and sort of, what do you call those? Those like speech routes or like, um, you know, when you give speeches in different universities. And he wrote a bunch of novels. He wrote Las Buenas Conciencias, uh, The Good Conscious, Aura, which is a novella. The Death of Artemio Cruz, um, Terra Nostra, The Crystal Frontier, The Hydra Head, which is more of an essay, um, and El Gringo Viejo as well. So he's, he's written tons of books and essays and poems and plays, and I think is one of the most well-known names in Mexico in terms of literary arts. Yeah, definitely. I think what you, I agree, everything you just said, I would just highlight two other things that were, one is kind of... Um, I'm not sure how much we'll get to talk about his complex relationship with the United States, but he was both like an Anglophile, but also hated the U.S. I had read some things um, about how, you know, he had experienced racism firsthand and it was difficult for him in the schools in the United States. I mean, as you can imagine. And so 
But then, like, he was the darling of the academic circuit later on in his life as a, as a speaker and a lecturer and, um, you know, as a writer of, of these novels, especially during the boom. Um, and I think the book you mentioned, El Gringo Viejo, kind of just highlights that all because it's a story about Ambrose Bierce, uh, the writer who disappeared in Mexico. He was trying to join Pancho Villa's army. Sure boy. Yeah, my boy. <laughs> And, you know, people say he died there. I think it was in Dim Carcosa, but you know, really, who can say? <laughs> but anyway, uh, I think that just kind of highlights, you know, the fact that he's interested both in the experience of the United States, but in this author that goes there and uses that as a backdrop for his his fiction. Um, and then also he wrote a bunch of essays against George Bush that he published later on in his life called Contra Bush. Oh, that's right. And yeah, and he was kind of antagonistic towards the towards the Republican Party. And uh, he said he called Clinton a grand statesman. And also uh, I, I was reading just this morning about how he had praise for Joe Biden, which I mean, ironically, is there not or coincidentally, sorry, is a, a current topic. So I kind of just thought that was kind of funny. You know, sometimes we and especially on the podcast, we've done a lot of authors that were, you know, wrote about things and maybe not the distant past, but, you know, 100 years ago and things like that. But Carlos Puente still has ties to people that are not just alive, but important political players today. And it can kind of show that relationship about how, although um, he identified as Mexican, um, obviously, but he, you know, that kind of tricky relationship with the United States, like a lot of writers have, I think is something that we can keep in mind and as a lens. And as we talk about the narrator's um, relationship to the United States and the death of Artemio Cruz. Yeah, man, that's a great point. And I think that can also bring us back to why we're doing this series in the first place, right? Because of our the current president of the United States and his hateful and uh, xenophobic discourse towards Latin American immigrants and especially towards Mexico and how I guess your example just shows the multi-directional relationship that Mexico has with the United States and vice versa, right? And how we can't ignore uh, the ties that bind and, and, you know, at once separate both countries. And I think Carlos Fuentes is a good example of that, a critic, but also an admirer of the United States. Um, and, not only lived there, but shared his ideas and his sentiments in the United States to great success, right? So there are people and there were people and will always be people in the United States who um, do uh, welcome and celebrate, I guess, the Mexican presence in not only American intellectual thought, but uh, also, I guess, just in terms of United States society. Yeah, of course. And it's just like, it, you know, the U.S. is soon going to be a, it will soon be a multilingual society. And I think, you know, it's just kind of like you embrace people that you live next to and, you know. The current political situation is not that, not to get too into politics, but I think, you know, we're both on the same page with that. And it's just kind of, it's sad. So anyway, we wanted to, in our own little way, bring light to some Mexican authors. And it's, it's one of the fun things about uh, doing the podcast. True. So one of the things we wanted to talk about is just why this book is so famous and why it's synonymous with the boom in Latin American literature. And although we kind of touched on this a little bit with his biography and we talked about the boom just before now, but I think that this book has a lot of things going on and there's a couple different parts to it. So maybe Alex, do you want to give us just the, the brief background on why you think this book is so famous? Well, you and I have both been wondering that and uh, well, okay. I mean, you and I both had some problems with this book and in terms of maybe maybe it was the translation, but we'll get into that a bit later. But Fuentes' novel is, is really famous and more than just this one, other ones as well, for the experimental prose and that he delved uh, into in various publications. And this one's no exception, right? I mean, this book, the structure of it 
there are three narrative voices, right? And they kind of interplay and intermingle and um, sort of try and represent a dying consciousness and sort of an invasion of the subconscious into memories and into one's lived experience. And Fuentes does that uh, with a bunch of plays with grammar, with, you know, your typical modernist stream of consciousness where there's no punctuation, all those uh, old tricks. And he's able to conflate this sort of, you know, um, vanguardista approach to literature with a retelling of the history of Mexico from the 1910 revolution onwards. I think it's important in that sense, a conflation of art and, and politics, one could say, or of art and history and sort of a rewiring of how the revolution is told, right, in Mexican society, which is a huge element of Mexican culture. So I think that's why it's really famous. And for its time as well, um, I think it really made an impact. So I would, I would mm -hmm. say that with my qualms, I mean, uh, Jake, you and I read the same translation. There's a newer one out right now. Um, the one that we read is translated by Sam Heilman. And the translation at times, I don't know. Uh, Jake, would you say it was repetitive? It was, a, it was just not very natural? I don't know. There was something about it that didn't really hook me in at times. Yeah, I think in terms of the, you're talking about the different structures of the novel. And I think in terms of the, I, what I assume is the translation is just, yeah, it felt awkward at times, I guess, just reading it and repetitive. But it's also, it's hard to know too, the fact that it could supposed to be that way. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those tricky things when you read a work in translation is you have to, you have to come to the conclusion on, is that the purpose of the prose? Or is it the, the translator trying to change something or making it different? So I think it's one of those things that, you know, you and I have both grappled with while reading it. And I also think that you were talking about why it's famous. And I think, you know, after reading some articles and going over kind of what uh, people that were more specialized in the fields thought of it, I think that, and this is not disparaging, but I think the intentions of the novel and one of the things that makes it accessible to a wider audience is that the intentions of the novel, at least broadly speaking, are clear, right? We know it's kind of a look at Mexico through this man's life. We know it's a look at kind of the the complications of identity and the forming of a nation through this kind of new experimental language and grammar and how the breakdowns and that reflects on the history of, of Mexico. And so when you're reading it, it's possible that the fact that the prose is clunky at times in the translation that we read or makes it awkward could be an intention by Fuentes to try to um, kind of show us where things uh, get complicated, both in life and through the grammar of the book. And so I kind of wonder, too, I mean, all that being said, I would like to read the new translation. But it is one of those things that I think that with experimental novels and when you're analyzing things down to the minuscule levels, it gets tough to interpret what you're looking at and whether it, if it's supposed to be that way or not. Yeah, I mean, and we're not alone. I mean, if you go on Goodreads and look at reviews of the death of Artemio Cruz, a lot of people do say that they're because the novel has this sort of repetitive um, triadic structure where you have the three narrators that mm -hmm. are sort of parceled out in different parts of each each section, right? Like you have, I don't know, a lot of critics that we read focus on the grammar of the novel and how when this plays with grammar to, you know, yeah. uh, get to something deeper. There's the idea of the, of the three pronouns. There's the I, who's Artemio Cruz as he's dying, right? And experiencing pain and, and uh, the oncomings of death. And then there's the you, which is sort of his self-conscious or his feelings of perhaps guilt that talks in like sort of a future perfect it's a strange sort of yeah. grammatical structure as well and then there's the objective factual uh he you know third person which is the retelling of certain events that he's remembering in his life 
So it's it's divided, I think, very strictly into those three sections. And um, they always come in the same order. Uh, they're very repetitive, especially the U's. And you can see that perhaps the theory was better than the practice in certain parts of this book in terms of what he was trying to do, right? And one can admire the idea of um, the structure and his sort of mapping out of one's psychology and a greater sense of a nation's history. But I think at times it didn't really work as well as he thought it did, at least in my opinion. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think when you read a book with a structure like this, um, you know, it's one of those things you have to evaluate as the reader. Like, is the structure of it make it more interesting at the expense of like the experimentalism? Um, I kind of said that weird, but it's, it's kind of <laughs> like when you read someone that we talked about, like Clarice Lispector, and you read Stream of Consciousness, and it's like, okay, this is great, but are the images I'm getting through the Stream of Consciousness making the experience for me as the reader worth it? And I think in some ways, reading this book in parts, especially with like the dying and the the part, you know, where he's kind of like interrogating himself, it, it just, mm -hmm. it, it drags on. Yeah, it falls a bit flat, I think, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um the idea of repetition and cycles is really important to Fuentes. And there's an article we read that speaks about that explicitly. Hopefully we can mention that today. Uh, so, you know, I, I think he was just trying to do a lot of things in this novel. And um, on a lot of levels, he was successful. But on some others, I think maybe he wasn't so successful. Uh, but before yeah. we get into that, we should give a very brief one-minute summary Ooh. of the book. Ooh. Yeah. And that's on me, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I don't know. I wasn't going to say anything, but maybe, <laughs> maybe it is on you. I think it's on me. Um, yeah, so one minute to give us the, <laughs> it's a long plot too, but I think you can do it, of the death of Artemio Cruz. So whenever you're ready, Jake, one minute and enlighten us. All right, you got that clock ready? Clock is ready. Woo, okay, I'm going to sip this coffee and I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay, so Artemio Cruz is a tycoon guy who is successful after the Mexican Revolution. He did a lot of bad things to get to the place that he went to. Uh, he had a lot of bad relationships, um, complicated relationships. He's a romantic for the past, yet apologizes for nothing that he does. Um, he's he's a war hero or villain, and he's ultimately successful. And the book is him looking back at his life at all the different areas that and complications that have come up in his life and his, him being corrupt. And Ultimately, uh, he dies, as it's called, the death of Artemio Cruz. And I'm going to say... You got 20 seconds. Yeah, I'm going to say I don't even need it. That's it. He dies. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was the fastest one-minute summary in the history of the casual academic. You know what? I think I had to make the choice there. You know, am I going to oversimplify or am I going <laughs> to get down into every little thing that happens? And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Well, that's a very Artemio choice to make, one of survival. Exactly, and you know, and I don't apologize for it. Well, <laughs> well, you won't have to until a priest is trying to anoint your forehead with oils. You know, I mean, you'll, you'll that's be... That's true. Yeah, yeah, you'll be good to go. A lot of inside jokes already about this book. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, I think, plot-wise and structurally speaking, is, is pretty much it. Um, the only thing I would add is that... Uh, Artemio Cruz is the son of an Indian woman who is raped by this plantation owner. You don't find that out till the end. And then um, he spends mm -hmm. his life sort of as a revolutionary, as a young guy, forsakes the ideas of the revolution for personal gain, and eventually pushes away everyone and isolates himself in his sort of uh, golden tower of riches and power at the expense of love. And um, 
I guess, being a good person. And the book is full of how other people suffer for his own um, choices and his own choice of self-preservation in front of that of others. And he grapples with that uh, throughout the novel. Yeah, I think that's fine. And also, I mean, just for frame of reference, if I can have my last 20 seconds back, you know, the two people that he loved in his life really were his his first lover, I guess. I don't know, Regina, who dies during the revolution. She's killed by the other side. And then his son, Lorenzo, who goes off to fight in the Spanish Civil War and gets killed. So those are the two kind of points where he feels remorse or regret. Um, everything else with his wife, with his daughter, he just kind of hates them. He hates everybody else. He says that he gave everything to the other people, to, to journalism, to Mexico, to his family, and they just don't appreciate him. And, um, and they're all just vultures trying to get his wealth when he's dying. Yeah, when he himself was a vulture to establish all the wealth that he, that he eventually gains, right? Mm -hmm. So um, to inform our discussion here, I mean, there's a lot of things you want to talk about. A lot of it has to do with history of Mexico, which I haven't studied in like 10 years. Um, but <laughs> we're going to give, or this we're going to try and give a very brief summary, excluding a lot of important elements of what happened in the Mexican Revolution um, and how that comes to play in Fuentes' novel and where Artemio Cruz is in that, in that spectrum. Uh, all right, so uh, in Mexico, in the 19th century, there was a guy named Santa Ana who was president 11 times after independence, and Mexico was, has been, I guess, uh, ruled by these strong men, these caudillos, like many Latin American countries uh, for a long time. So and then came along Porfirio Diaz, who uh, was a dictator um, that ruled for a long time under what is known as the Porfiriato. And his motto, which is actually the motto of the Brazilian flag now, is order and progress, right? So he was trying to modernize Mexico at the expense of individual liberties and uh, minorities and the peasantry, Indian population, etc. So around 1910, uh, during the huge waves of nationalism and, you know, the starting of or I guess the spreading of Marxist thought and uh, socialism, well, the revolution started in Mexico. And the revolution, one can say, was from 1910 to 1924. Over 240,000 people were killed in combat. And according to this website, 750,000 were dead from diseases and uh, destruction to industry. So um, huge casualties. And even though Madero was the first elected president um, in Mexico, he was assassinated and that led to the rise of about three or four different caudillos, as they're called, uh, who vied for power. Or first they worked together, and then they sort of split off. You have Victoriano Huerta, Álvaro Obregón, um, Vanustiano Carranza, and Emilio Zapata. And then you have Pancho Villa as well. Uh, so all these guys had different ideas, no? Um, and different futures for Mexico, and they all had this infighting, and were killing each other, and, and Mexico was just devastated by the violence between these four, uh, four leaders. And, of course, who suffered the most were the people who the revolution was trying to defend and uphold, which, of course, were the peasantry, the uh, Indian populations in the south, more or less the repressed of Mexico. So the revolution was very complicated, and the narrative changed hands I don't know how many times. Once peace was established in Mexico, the idea was to try to uh, unify a myth of the revolution to unite the people behind the idea of it, even though it was anything but unified uh, when it happened. Mexico has a complicated relationship with the revolution, as many Latin American countries do. And I think Fuentes is dealing with that by telling the story of the revolution and um, how it was betrayed and twisted uh, by those who won through the narrative voice of Artemio Cruz. 
Yeah. So I think uh, I appreciate that excellent summary, the Cliff Notes version of uh, of the Mexican Revolution. Nice job there, Alex. Uh, and I think bringing that back to Artemio Cruz and the novel, I think that for me, I think it's interesting because when Fuentes chose his protagonist, he did not choose someone who was sympathetic. It's through the eyes of the people who we can say won the revolution, but at a cost. And I think the book's tension is dealing with that in the relationship. And I think that as we talked about in the beginning, there are three things that we, the kind of three points were that the relationship to Mexico, the Cruz's relationship to Mexico, Cruz's relationship then to the outside, which in this case is kind of like the Americans, and then what happened in the aftermath of the revolution. The best starting point I think that I'm most interested in is how Cruz's relationship to Mexico and kind of this aftermath of the revolution, because a lot of the stuff we read in the academic criticism was talking about how in the end, you know, obviously this is on Artemio on his deathbed and him looking back and this lens through the country. But it's he doesn't necessarily feel any sort of guilt about what he did, all the bad things, the people he killed, the deaths he's responsible for. He just feels, you know, kind of sad about his son and his first love. And that's it. And I'm wondering the choice about Cruz as an unsympathetic figure and choose to focus through that lens. What do you think that Fuentes is trying to tell us? What's what's the point of all this? That's a really good question, man. Um, and I think it's problematic these days, the choice of narrator, you know, because it's told again through um, the masculine voice of the victorious, right? At the expense of those who lost and those who continue to be repressed by uh, Mexican society. But I think Fuentes' idea, and, you know, we read that this is a book, or actually Fuentes in an interview talked about how this is a dialogue of mirrors. That's kind of how he envisioned this book. So part of me thinks that Artemio Cruz is supposed to sort of make its Mexican readers confront themselves in a certain way and um, confront the ugly part of not only their history on a national level, but also their history on an individual level. Carlos Fuentes and Octavio Paz, right? Again, I'm citing two, <laughs> two masculine voices here. They both thought that Mexico was always trying to deny uh, its true history and its heritage, right? And the, and the myth-making of the revolution is also part of that, right? Of denying what actually happened and painting it in broad, unifying strokes. And really, it was just full of, um, you know, violence, rape, and uh, one could just say almost genocide, in a sense, in certain parts of Mexican history. So I think, you know, to, to have this ugly figure at the forefront of this book, remembering what, what his part was in the betrayal and sort of darkening of the Mexican Revolution, I think that's just holding up a mirror to, above all, Mexican men and Mexican politicians and Mexican society. And uh, is saying a lot about what Fuentes thought the Mexican character was. Yeah, I mean, I think too, and ultimately it's kind of this hollow shell of a character. It really, I think, is a pretty pretty strong criticism of, of, so of Mexican society, honestly. Because if he's talking about Artemio Cruz as the archetypal leader in Mexico, that's not a very positive picture. This book was published in the 60s, but the fact of the matter is that like Cruz's power comes off of the classical things of any despot, you know, it's because he's taking advantage of people. You know, I think in the book, he he charges outrageous interest rates to especially the, the Indians that are in his um, employ, I will say. Um, he takes advantage of narratives in the newspaper. It's kind of this classic uh, tycoon. I'm going to control the media. I'm going to control when what information gets released to the public to control the narrative for myself. Um and also kind of these behind the scenes dealings with the Americans and the fact that I'm going to get this external money, but also I'm going to manipulate them. And really it, kind of an almost Machiavellian character, you know, the ends for him justify the means. 
And in the end, you know, he has these chants to be absolved by the priest, by his family. And he doesn't reach out to his wife and say that he loves her. He doesn't uh, reach out to his daughter. He, you know, he doesn't accept religion. And he's kind of just like he's <laughs> in the worst way possible self-made. And he has no qualms about it. And so the fact that he's not remorseful, I think, speaks to the fact that, you know, this criticism, this, this mirror up to society to kind of really show the fact that the powerful are the corrupt and that this is nothing that's new in terms of any sort of revolution. But it's also, I think, you know, for how reasonable the novel is sad in a way. Oh, it's very sad. You know, um, I want to go off what you were saying and sort of bring it um, back to an essay by Octavio Paz called um, Hijos de la Chingada or Sons of la Malinche, which was published in uh, the Labyrinth of Solitude in 1950, which uh, if you read this essay and you read The Death of Artemio Cruz, the parallels are, are very obvious. But Octavio Paz, he, he says that, um, I'm going to quote here, to the Mexican, there are only two possibilities in life. Either he inflicts the actions implied by chingar, which means uh, to fuck or fuck over, on others, or else he suffers them himself at the hands of others. And that's actually almost a direct quote from one part in The Death of Artemio Cruz, where Cruz's mindset is one of survival. If I don't fuck them, they're going to fuck me. That's like the most simplistic primitive idea of power relations, right? And not at all democratic or and not at all social. I think both, both writers um, are criticizing that element of Mexican society and of um, Mexican thought, which is, well, um, as soon as I have the chance to, to get what's mine, I'm going to get it and uh, screw everyone else. And that's exactly what Cruz does uh, during the revolution and, and afterwards. And I think that that's sort of this cyclical mentality um, that both Paz and Fuentes points to in Mexican history and can really be traced back by certain critics and by these guys to, of course, um, the conquest of the New World and sort of how La Raza Cosmica, as um, what's his name, Jose Vasconcelos, I think is the guy who wrote that, uh, talks about where it's like, well, we were born of rape and born of, um, you know, genocide. And we've been obfuscating that, that past of ours for centuries. And because we're not coming to terms with this, uh, we're repeating these cycles of violence and taking advantage of others, um, only, only hurting ourselves and limiting our progress. And, you know, we'll inherently work against whatever evolution we want to engender in, in society. If that was clear, I'm not sure if it was uh, my explanation of that. I think that that um, works a lot in the book and works on many levels. And, I think we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I think it's just simply stated, you know, if that's going to be the operating system for a society, then there's no way to get out of that because the next person in line is just going to do the same thing, take advantage of everyone else, get what they can, try to be successful. And there's no sort of outlet for that. And even though it can be a modern society, if that's how people are going to think about things, then that's difficult. Or at least that's how Artemio sees it. And I think potentially... The fact that his wife and his daughter don't like him and the fact that they seem to be better people, hopefully that, that they will be ones that kind of can break the cycle. But I think that that idea of like cyclical things and like uh, destroying the other in order to get power. Uh, we read one of these articles about how um, the Aztecs did blood sacrifices and like the blood of the innocents would uh, satiate the, the gods thirst for blood and then the harvest would be good. Of course, I'm simplifying there. You know, that kind of. Uh, old ancient cosmology, the modern day version of that would be, you know, by destroying the other, I am getting better and I'm improving my, my lot in life. And you can, I think that's kind of the modern day principle of that. So these cyclical binding relationships that are very complex are kind of what keeps the society 
in that sort of, I guess, post-revolutionary world, you know, where it's just kind of like everyone taking advantage of everyone else and trying to get his or hers. Yeah, right. And as you were saying, it's difficult to find a way out of that. And, you know, W.G. Sabal talks about that too in the Rings of Saturn, right? These cycles of destruction. So it's not just limited to Mexico or Latin America, right? Every, every I think, society struggles with that. Of course, um, yeah. On, on a certain level. As you were saying, I mean... Fuentes, he was very interested in um, Aztec cosmology, I guess, uh, according to some some interviews and to some sources. I mean, the quote I read in the beginning, uh, he does have a lot of Aztec imagery there of sacrifice, you know, with blood and what that's supposed to be doing, right? Like where one thinks that a blood sacrifice can prolong life, no? Um, what it really does is just delay the inevitable. And one can see that in Cruz's memories, right? Where every memory is pretty much someone is sacrificed, Someone dies for him so he can continue. And he keeps remembering that, or he remembers all these sacrifices, I think, in a vain attempt to prolong his life and prolong time. Um, but of course, that comes crashing down in the end when um, the sort of three structure narratives, I would say, melts into one. And the I, the he, and the you are all just kind of revolving around each other until he dies. And, you know, it speaks to the intelligence of Carlos Fuentes and the really cool idea he had for this book. Um, does it come across all the time uh, in work? Maybe not. But the idea was there of him incorporating sort of Aztec cosmology with a sort of modernist structure and <laughs> trying to deal with and grapple with Mexican identity and history. So it's a lot to work with in this book. There's a lot going on. It's just that. I have nothing else enlightening to add there. But, you know, it's just one of those things when those three structures break down, the I, the you, and the he, and... It just kind of it's him trying to stave off his own death because ultimately he has no faith in any sort of future, neither holy, you know, with Catholicism, not from like Aztec cosmology and definitely not from like his posterity because he has nothing because he's invested nothing into his family, really. So it's just kind of that's the tragedy. Yeah. And like, does Fuentes produce some sort of outlet or some sort of exit? From this cycle of violence, like from this book, do you think? Do you think there's anything that, that signals a way out? I mean, if the disinterest of his family and him, if we can interpret that as them not being happy with Artemio, uh, then I think potentially, right? Because they see how awful of a person he was. I, I'm reminded of the scene in the in the novel where, like, he's kind of the elder uh, person in his I can't remember if it was in the city or on it in his hacienda but like everybody comes and there's kind of like this they have like this ball for him and he just sits and watches and it's like all under his eye and it's this really creepy kind of scene it's a pantomime of society and maybe once his stranglehold on kind of his surroundings is let go perhaps there's a future in that but as far as like a direct this is something that breaks the cycle I didn't I didn't see that yeah, I me mean, neither. And that scene you mentioned is so great where he's like this old, disgusting man on his throne and people just dance around him. Um, and all of them are there to gain personal favor with him um, or just are trying to seek out personal gain themselves. In fact, on his on his deathbed, his wife and his daughter are just desperately trying to find his will yeah. and trying to find his money. So like there actually isn't really a sense of somebody uh, reacting differently. It's like, well, he's dying, so I'm going to go ahead and get mine. So that cycle is kind of continued by the victims of this violence committed by Artemio Cruz, right? Instead of somebody learning from it, it's just, well, as soon as this guy weakens, I'm going to go ahead and take the throne uh, when the getting's good. That's, that's also problematic, but there are two moments. Uh, there are two characters, as you mentioned, where he does feel regret, and those are two instances of love, right? And the first one is with Regina, 
who he actually does rape at first. And but they eventually apparently form some sort of love uh, relationship together. And she's killed during the revolution, as you said. And then there's the there's his son, Lorenzo, who goes to fight in the Spanish Civil War and sort of reenacts his father's own youth because he's, he's actually raised where Fuentes was raised. Right. Like or not Fuentes, sorry, Cruz was raised and he sort of takes him away from his mother, puts him into the same habitat as when he was a kid and is sort of trying to have his son make the choices he couldn't make. And what happens? Lorenzo dies in um, in the Pyrenees during the Spanish Civil War. So I guess there's the idea that in these instances of love, uh, if you don't make the selfish choice, then all these possibilities open up of what could have happened, right? But um, because there wasn't love in any of his decisions, um, you know, those who were closest to him died too. And I think those instances of regret, you know, and desire, she said, no, he says, memory is desire satisfied, are there's like the little windows into some sort of light of hope or of alternatives. Yeah, but even then, I mean, that's he wants to possess Regina, so he does, right? You said it start he start he rapes her and he talks about how young she is. It's totally screwed up. And then the fact that he sends his son to be like this macho version of him on the same hacienda, the same wherever, it's just kinda like these are all through Artemio's frame of reference. Perhaps the fact that the son fought for something greater in the Spanish Revolution, uh, I mean, that's positive. And he has that kind of like he writes that note to his father where he's Seems, you know, happy with his lot in life fighting in Spain, but it's just, it's, it's bleak and it's all through the lens of the tycoon. So it's not like we get uh, any sort of, you know, positivity really coming through. Yeah. You know, I wonder if, if nowadays people think Carlos Fuentes' voice is a bit antiquated, right? Cause like, okay, the criticism is there. Um, but like you said, it's the voice of a male uh, criticizing males, you know, in, in Mexican society. Because, you know, men are the ones who had the power in Mexico, and I guess that's kind of still how it how it's going, um, like in most societies in the world. But um, I'd be curious to see, and we didn't find it on our um, deep dives this time around, is some sort of feminist critique of this book and of Carlos Fuentes in general as an, as an intellectual. Um, so I know there's a big backlash against Octavio Paz because he, he got a lot more conservative as he got older, and, um, you know, he's considered to be this kind of have this uh, authoritarian uh, relationship with Mexican intellectual thought and in, in history. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there are some really cool ideas now about this book. But I want to just focus in a bit more on Regina for a second here, you know, because they, they talk about this invented story about how they saw each other's reflection in a pool. And then that, that's like how their love blossomed. And, you know, Cruz calls that a beautiful lie, right? And they repeat it to each other constantly because they can't mention or they can't face the fact that Cruz raped her in the beginning. And they sort of made this artificial love story, but they ended up believing it. Or at least that's how Cruz presents it. And that seems to me to be, to kind of go back to what we were saying earlier, right? About how, according to Paz, Mexicans are uh, just unwilling to face where they come from and have invented so many different beautiful lies to try and unite the country together. But that's never going to work. Like it never worked with Cruz and Regina, until like the truth is actually confronted. Hence, I think this dialogue of mirrors as, as Fuentes calls this book and the colluding and eventually smashing of them um, into the one self that is just full of self-hatred and regret and, and dies, right? So, I mean, as you said, it's a very bleak book, but there's a lot of, lot of cool ideas, I think, going on in it. Yeah, I think so too. And it's just one of those things that unless you can look your history in the past and be honest with it um, and then go from there, then there's, then it's just kind of um, putting a bandaid on a very large wound. 
Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and of course, in this case, it's looking at the colonial past and um, dealing with that. So, you know, through that relationship of Regina and Artemio, we see the lens of the conquistador and Mexico. If you can sum up this book in one word and how it reflects Mexican society, it's denial, according to mm. Carlos Fuentes, right? Um, yeah. Can we speak to the truth or the extent to which that is a valuable insight nowadays? No, we cannot. But I would say that that's kind of the main thing that Fuentes is working with um, along the same lines as his contemporary Octavio Paz. And yeah, I mean, Jake, so I'm going to switch gears here. I want to ask you, because we said the book was clunky, that there are parts we didn't like or blah, blah, blah. But uh, what were the elements of this book that you did thoroughly enjoy, if there were any? <laughs> no, I enjoyed a lot of it. I think the actual, uh, the story of Cruz and the revolution, I think was, is very interesting. And it's more complex than some of the other parts that I think that uh, maybe Fuentes wants to be seem more complex because, you know, the decisions of the revolution and kind of him abandoning his ideals to survive, I think is a very fair point in sort of any situation. You know, he's in this jail cell where he either can be killed or be killed, you know, and if it's like if those are for the ideas of the revolution, and I think it's a very human choice to be like a survival. And I think that those situations and during the revolution and the fact of how complicated those life or death situations are, especially in like sort of a war mode, I think I would have liked to have seen stay a little bit longer. And then also, I think that, you know, when point is when it's not in the experimental mode, when he was talking about the places and the descriptions of people, I really enjoyed his use of colors and the senses he evokes, you know, the smell, the colors, the motifs of green and, and blue and brown and the different eyes of people. I think it's a very interesting thing. So I really enjoyed that. How about you? Well, yeah, I mean, you read an article um, that talks about how, you know, when this is a writer who follows his nose, right, and that his kind of the way he uses smell is a thousand times more evocative than the lists he piles up of the things that uh, Cruz owns. And yeah, I think that part was, you know, was great. And, and there were beautiful moments in every narrative mode. Um, but I definitely enjoyed the, the he mode the most, which is more of the plot driven part, um, which, you know, the smug side of me wants to say, oh, no, I enjoyed the experimental mode more. I just didn't think it was performed very well. Uh, and <laughs> every time you'd get to the third part of each of the structure of each part, you know, where it starts with he, then, or it starts with I, then goes with he, then with you, you know? And like, every time I read, you will open the curtain, it was like, oh God, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you know, back with this future perfect mode of just no commas and punctuation and repetitive uh, metaphors of opening windows. And I don't know. I, I just thought the repetition and like the cyclical nature of the book, which, which is all on purpose and all experimental just got, got too boring. But um, the parts are a bit more plot driven. I think we're very well written and um, very emotive as well. Yeah, it's true. And also, I mean, anytime that people talk about mirrors now, I always my frame of reference is like Borges and Silvino Campo. And so anytime I read about other people with mirrors, it's just it's those are stiff competition. All right. Well, to finish up our episode today, uh, I'm going to read one of my favorite quotes here, which happens at the very end of the book when it's back with Cruz's uh, childhood and um, the mother of the plantation owner is locked up in her room and she's kind of crazy. And they represent, I guess, like the the Criollo population after independence and 
those who just repeated Spanish domination on uh, on their own people, right? Uh, so the mother is talking to her son, and her son says, Mama, you don't know what happened. Her look froze his voice. No, she snorted silently. No what? That nothing lasts? That power founded on injustice must perish at the hands of injustice? That the enemies we shot, whose tongues we cut out, whose arms we cut off, whose lands we raped so that we could be the great family? That someday they would find revenge and destroy us, take from us what was never really ours, what we held by strength and not by right? That in spite of everything your brother refused to give up and went on being a menchaca, not far from the scene as you did, but here below, among the workers facing danger, raping mulatto girls and Indian girls, and not, like you, merely seducing willing women? That from his thousand fornications there had to remain at least one proof that he had existed in this land? That all of the sons he sprinkled over the countryside, one at least had to be born close by? It's a bit out of context, that quote, but um, I think the beginning of it at least really kind of exemplifies what we've been talking about, right? Where it's this cyclical nature of power gotten by injustice can only be taken by injustice, right? And the end of the book is the start of Cruz's story, you know, and sort of sets the stage for how he'll live his life. And, you know, the book begins and ends in the same note of just power taken by injustice just sort of changes bloody hands, you know, back and forth without end. So I, I, I liked that quote. Yeah, no, it's a great quote. And I think it's very indicative of the novel and Fuentes' message. Well, guys, we're out of time. So we want to just remind you that our next episode will be on Faces in the Crowd by Valeria Duisegui. Um, pick that up. Granta publishes it. It's a pretty cool edition. And she's a really important writer uh, these days. And we hope you enjoy the episode. Jake, any last words on the death of Artemio Cruz? No, man. I think it was it was excellent to finally read Carlos Fuentes, and I'm excited to read at some point in the future, El Gringo Viejo. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's good talking to you about it, buddy. Uh, I hope that we were all right. As we said before, we're not uh, experts in Mexican history, so we hope we did a good enough job to catch you all up. And yeah, man, have a good rest of your, your day. Oh, thank you. You too, man. Happy Mother's Day here in Spain. Happy Spanish Mother's Day. All right, guys. Well, thank you again for listening and for all your support. You know, make sure you can check us out on all of the social media platforms. Uh, take a look at our Patreon page uh, where you'll get early access to, well, not only this episode, but to Faces in the Crowd and every other episode that, that we release as well as special content in the future. So uh, thanks again for listening. Hopefully we've inspired in you um, an interest in Carlos Fuentes and Mexican literature, which will hopefully continue with Faces in the Crowd. So we'll talk to you guys soon and take care.